Investigators, thank you for listening to True Crime Deadline. Now, this literally took forever to record for you this episode, so I'm glad that it finally happened. As you know, I live in Beverly Hills, California, and I work as a freelance reporter for one of the LA stations here. And we have had two of the strongest quakes recorded in about 20 years. The first one was a 6.4 quake, and that one was on Independence Day, 4th of July. And I was planning on recording after my shift, but then the quake happened, and that meant a 10, 12-hour day plus drive time. And then the next day um, was the bigger 7.1 magnitude earthquake. And while I was recording this episode, the quake actually hit. So I posted that video for you on Twitter and also Facebook under True Crime Deadline. Now, aside from that, I was excited to share with you last week's episode was featured on the news in Palm Springs, California, on both the ABC and CBS affiliates for my exclusive interview that I got with Louise Turpin's sister, Elizabeth. In an interview for former KESQ reporter Matt Johnson's podcast, True Crime Deadline, Louise Turpin's sister, Elizabeth Flores, reveals never-before-heard details about the Turpin children's treatment at home. She says she feared Louise engaged in witchcraft and wonders if it played a part in the abuse of the children. She messed around with like the Ouija board and snakes, the whole thing, and the books, like the witchcraft books and stuff like that. That episode was on the House of Horrors case that I covered in depth here. And it was a very, very disturbing case of torture in which David and Louise Turpin were found guilty of torturing 12 of their 13 children. If you haven't listened to it yet, brace yourself. It's pretty pretty disturbing stuff, but please check it out. And while you're there, please subscribe and write a review. It really helps independent podcasts like this one get noticed. Now, at the end of this episode, I have a shout-out for those of you who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts, so thank you. And I'm also going to tell you about a podcast I just started listening to called Murderous Minors. But first, let's dive into this case, a lesser-known serial killer case out of New Mexico. Now, this case I didn't report on myself, but nonetheless, it has haunted me for years because it happened across the street from where I lived as a newbie reporter, and I was also my own cameraman, for a station in New Mexico. I was working for the CBS station. This episode, I want to also warn you, is pretty graphic stuff, so it's not for everybody. But after you hear the details in this case, you can see why one of the victim's mother feels that there could possibly be more victims out there and why she questions, why did it take so long for investigators to arrest the suspect, the serial killer, Robert Fry? I remember some people in town talking about the case quite a bit and telling me that they suspected it went unsolved for years because of the suspect's mother's influence on the town. But you be the judge. So let's start the case. There are four victims. One was nearly decapitated. And the serial killer should have been caught right away, in my opinion. But he hid in plain sight, preying on trusting people that he knew and strangers who needed help. Buckle up, investigators. You're on deadline. From the Hollywood Hills to your ear holes, this is True Crime Deadline. A podcast discussing cold cases, murder mysteries, and completely random thoughts. Now, here's your host, a man who stands in front of crime scene tape and talks on the TV box for a living, Mr. Mystery himself, Matt Johnson. 
And thank you, Mr. Announcer Man. So this story, it takes me back to my first job as a reporter, where I'm working as a one-man band. That means basically I'm doing my own editing, I'm my own cameraman, the whole bit. I don't mind, I love it. I'm working as a reporter in Farmington, New Mexico for the CBS affiliate KREZ News 6. Farmington, well, that's a very small town. It looks like a town out of a John Wayne Western movie. It sits in the four corners of the United States, bordering Arizona, Colorado, and Utah. You can actually stand in one spot where you're technically standing in all four states. The population, 45,000 people. But you hardly see anyone on the road, and you hardly see anyone around town. But when you do, everybody knows everybody else, and this is one of those places where everybody knows your business. There's a main street with a few shops, a barber shop, a bar, and of course the police station. I'm 23 years old at the time, and I live above a home decor shop on Main Street. It's a wooden building from the 1800s. There's a scanner in my two-room apartment uh, so that I don't miss any stories. And there's also a fax machine where I'm getting news of the day. Remember those? Every day when I leave my apartment, I look at the building across the street. And I think of this because that is the place where two of the most brutal murders that had ever taken place in New Mexico state history happened. On June 6, 2000, Betty Lee was out with her friends having a few drinks at the Turnaround Bar in Farmington. She's 36 years old, a divorced mother of five, and she was out having a girls' night out. She's a hard-working nursing student. She goes to a nearby community college. She likes gardening and spending time with her kids. She was a member of the Navajo Nation, and that's really important for this story. Because there, you're not allowed to drink. And let alone, it was hard enough for her to be able to get out of the house and let her hair down. So she was having a great night. And everything was fun, and everything was fine, until her friends decided to leave early. They were going to go meet up with their boyfriends in Farmington. So she goes outside, she has no way home, and she calls her brother from a payphone for help. She says, can you please pick me up? And he says, no. She doesn't know what she's going to do. She bursts into tears. And that's when she runs into local boy Robert Fry, 26-year-old security guard and a Navy vet. He offers to give her a ride home. He pulls up beside her and tells her he just hates to see a woman cry. And he's with his 22-year-old friend Lester Ng. He says, don't worry, we will not let anything happen to you. And she gets in the car. She wipes away her tears and they drive off. But at one point, just about five minutes down the road, he says, oh, I need to pee. So they drive off onto a dirt road. Again, it's a very remote location. She doesn't think anything of it, so she stays in the car. She's listening to music as the boys go relieve themselves, do whatever they need to do. And she turns the channel on the radio. And that's when she feels it. The man drags her out of the car by her hair. It's Robert Fry. Remember the same man that said that he didn't want to see a woman cry? Well, he tries to rape her. She's struggling. She's trying to get awake, screaming for help. He pulls out a knife and stabs her in the chest. At this point, she does break free somehow. She's bleeding and she's running for help, screaming. No one's hearing her screams. But she doesn't get far. She looks back behind her. Robert Fry, a six-foot-one heavy-set man, is grabbing something from the trunk of his car. It's a sledgehammer. And then he starts coming towards her. She falls to the ground and he starts beating her to death. His buddy, Lester Ng, does nothing. He watches the whole thing happen. 
What he does do is he helps cover the body and throws her clothes in a nearby ravine. The two decide to drive off. But the car, it's not working. They're stuck in the sand. So what does Fry do? He calls his mom and dad by using his mom's cell phone. Fry's mom and dad show up, they hop in the truck, and they go home. Ing is dropped off at his house, Fry changes his clothes, and then he and his mom drive back to the crime scene and try to pull that car out of the sand. But you know what happens? Their truck, too, gets stuck in the sand. So using that same cell phone, they call for a tow truck. At this point, you would think that the tow truck driver would notice something is very wrong here. Or at least you would hope so. There's a body a few yards away. There is probably blood on that car. But he doesn't see anything, or at least he says that. The tow truck driver gets the car and the truck out of the sand, and everybody goes their separate ways. Betty's body is not discovered until the very next day by an electrical line inspector who happened to be working in the area. He noticed a trail of blood, thinking that it was blood from a deer. Illegal hunting is what he's thinking, so he follows it and makes that gruesome discovery of Betty's bloody body covered in sagebrush, her face hardly recognizable as a human because of the sledgehammer. Tire marks, the mother's cell phone, and bloody boot prints link the two men to the crime, and they're both convicted of kidnapping, sexual assault, and second-degree murder. An investigation discovered that Fry's mom, who happened to be working at San Juan County Probation Department, had driven into the crime scene as police were investigating and collecting evidence the next day. But again, she said that she had no idea what had happened, right? Well, around the same time, she gets fired. Her son would be accused of another murder with the same man. Ng had told police from prison that the two had killed before. And they got away with it. He said they liked killing Native Americans just for the fun of it. He said that two years before Betty died, he and Fry offered a man by the name of Donald Socio ride home to the Navajo Nation. Donald was 40 years old, and he was in Farmington that day to sell some plasma, to earn a little extra money, and to help people in need. So he doesn't think anything of it. He thinks it's a nice gesture, and he gets in the car. And when he does, the three men drive off. At one point, Fry turns down a dirt road, and then they pull Donald out of the car, who is already weak from selling blood and plasma, and they start beating him, almost to death. They take the little money that he has from his pockets, and as he's about to pass out from the pain, they hold him over a cliff, where he's pleading for his life, and they drop him to his death. His case goes unsolved for several years, until Ng sings in prison. And the two are tried and found guilty of Donald's murder. And at this point, police start thinking, what other crimes could Fry be connected to? We already know he killed this mother of five who needed help, and this 40-year-old man who was just donating blood and plasma. What else is this guy capable of? What has he done? They start digging into his past, and then they discover his obsession with dungeons and dragons, and that he collected knives and swords. And then detectives start thinking back. Well, there's that case out of Farmington a few years ago when the two men were brutally murdered and almost decapitated. That's right. It was at that knife store called The Eclectic. 
The Eclectic was a head shop that sold bongs, pipes, blacklight posters, lingerie, and knives and swords. On Thanksgiving night in 1996, 18-year-old Matthew Trecker was there with his friend 24-year-old Joseph Fleming. The door was locked. They were closed for the day. Then, Joseph hears a knock at the door. He sees Robert Fry and Harold Pollock, a couple guys he knows. They say that they were drinking at a party and wanted to go find a prostitute. But when they saw the lights on at the shop, they decided they needed to use the restroom. Joseph says no problem and he lets them in. They see Matthew asleep in a chair. And while Joseph is distracted, Robert and Pollock decide that they're going to steal some expensive knives from the store. They hide the knives in their long black trench coats and walk to their car. After they leave, they realize someone actually might notice that the knives are gone, that they're stolen, and that they were the only two people inside the shop aside from the guy who was asleep and the other guy who works there when the shop is closed. So they drive out to a canyon, dig a hole, and bury the knives, intending to dig them up at a later time. Then Pollock says Fry starts talking about how they should cover their ass. One hour later, they return to the eclectic, knock on the door saying they need to use the restroom once again. And once again, Joseph lets them in. While in the store, Pollock goes to the bathroom. Later, telling police that he's violently ill from the alcohol that they were drinking at the party and after committing the crime. So he's in the bathroom vomiting, and while he's there, he's curled up on the cold tile floor. He starts to hear loud yelling and fighting and a huge crash. He makes his way out of the bathroom and sees his friend Robert Fry wrestling with Joseph. Fry's hands are around Joseph's throat, and then Fry stands up and takes his steel toe boots and stomps on Joseph's throat. Now, after that, Pollock claims that he doesn't remember anything else. He would later tell police that his next recollection is when he leaves the bathroom for a second time and sees Joseph on the floor motionless, surrounded by blood. And then he looks down and sees Matthew lying on the floor with a large, ragged hole where his throat should be. He is nearly decapitated. At this point, Pollock is in shock himself. He's suffering from alcohol poisoning, and he says that Robert Fry tells him to either clean up the mess and cover up the murders, or have his head cut off too. Pollock agrees. He goes to the bathroom and starts cleaning up the vomit first, then comes back into the shop with toilet paper and starts cleaning up the blood, but there is too much. The men decide to leave. Pollock reaches into Joseph's pocket and pulls out the store keys. He puts the key in the lock and it breaks off. Now they're stuck inside the store in the middle of this brutal crime scene. So what do they do? One of the men take a nearby TV and throw it through the shop window and they crawl out through the glass and drive off to the frozen Farmington Lake. Pollock breaks a hole into the ice, and the two throw the knives and fry still toe boots into the lake. They say never to be found again. Shortly after disposing of the murder weapons, Robert Fry realizes he's missing his wallet. So they drive back to the store for a third time and crawl through the broken window and search around the bodies and the blood but they don't find it, and they leave empty-handed. And now they start working on their alibi. They drive out toward the hills, agreeing to tell police that in fact they were inside the shop earlier that night, but they left and they became stuck in the mud 
they decided to go off-roading. The next morning, an employee of the shop next door notices the broken window. There's glass everywhere on the sidewalk, a TV sitting in the middle of Main Street, and she calls police. She waits there. She doesn't see the bodies. Police do when they arrive a few minutes later. They find Matthew Trecker and Joseph Fleming dead. An autopsy would determine that Joseph was hit in the head and knocked unconscious. He was stabbed multiple times. His throat was stepped on and cut. Matthew was hit on the side of the head with a blunt end of a sword and stabbed multiple times and his head nearly sawed off. Investigators interview Fry and Pollock shortly after the murders. They say, yes, they were there, but again deny anything to do with the killings. And the case, it goes unsolved for years. And during this time, Robert Fry is reportedly telling people about the crimes, including two acquaintances and a former girlfriend on multiple occasions in detail, talking about how the key was broken in the door, how the murder weapons would never be found, details only a killer would know. And he also tells his ex-girlfriend he was glad that he killed them. But they were too afraid to tell police because Fry threatened to chop off their heads and kill their families if they said a word. So at this point, you have several people who know something, who should say something, but they're too afraid to go to police. These crimes, these brutal killings could have been solved. The victims' families could have gotten justice, but they were too afraid to talk, including the accomplice Pollock. That is until fall 2000, nearly four years later, and that's when a new police detective is assigned to the cold case and immediately goes back to Pollock and does another interview. This would change everything. They say that they have new evidence that implicates him and that he'll take the fall for the crimes if he doesn't cooperate. He agrees. He takes a special plea deal where he pleads guilty but maintains innocence of the crimes. His testimony leads to Fry, who is already behind bars and serving two life sentences plus 46 years for the murders of Betty and Donald. Fry will finally go on trial in this case. And since he's already behind bars, a few of those witnesses who should have spoken up sooner are now able to take the stand and talk. His ex-girlfriend tells the jury the details she was told about the murders, including facts that the victims had been stabbed multiple times and nearly decapitated, and that the monitor had been thrown out the front window of the store after the key had been broken in the lock. She also tells the jury when she asked him how he knew about all this, Robert Fry, murderer, told her that police had let him walk through the crime scene and that he had psychic abilities, and he was able to see and dream what had happened to Matthew and Joseph. The witness testimony and the evidence lead to a guilty verdict. Prosecutors said that there were more than 50 bloody shoe prints in the store that matched Robert Fry's boots. And when he was initially interviewed by police, he told them that in his opinion, the probable murder weapon was a sword called the Franconian Cleaver. I mean, come on, we need to stop right here. If you say that, the bigger mystery and the evidence at this point is why did the victim's families have to wait this long for justice? It's beyond me. He should have been arrested at that point in time. Franconian Cleaver? All right, I digress. Pollock, as for him, he never testifies in court, though. He's too terrified. 
Prosecutors read his testimony. One prosecutor is asking the questions while the other is reading the statements from the witness stand. After the trial, Matthew Trecker's mother tells reporters she is still haunted how the case was handled. She says, Had Fry been arrested after the murders of her son and his friend, then perhaps Betty and Donald would still be alive today. The assistant district attorney tells reporters, There was no real motive in this case. There was no motive for the murders. He just likes to kill people. He enjoys killing people. And he wouldn't just kill people. He would overkill mutilating the bodies after the person was dead because he liked doing it. A few years back, Robert Fry's attorney does something shocking, and the case is back in the headlines. He tries to get him off death row. New at 6, a San Juan County District Court judge upholds a death sentence. According to the Farmington Daily Times, Judge Karen Townsend denied a motion Wednesday to overturn the death sentence of 39-year-old Robert Fry. Fry was convicted in the murder of 36-year-old Betty Lee back in 2000. His attorneys argued that the sentence should be life without parole because New Mexico abolished the death penalty in 2009. Prosecutors said the legislature decided the change did not abolish previously imposed death sentences. Fry is still on death row today. But before he was sentenced to death, he looked out at the courtroom and saw two dozen of Betty Lee's family members who were there, and he begged for his life to be spared. He looked over at the judge and the jury and he said, please spare his life for the sake of his mother and father. You know, the same mom and dad of the year who helped him get his car out of the sand, out of the crime scene, who helped him change that night, who gave him a cell phone and who said that they never suspected that their son was a serial killer all along? Those parents. Investigators, until next time. Thank you for investigating True Crime Deadline with Matt Johnson. For more information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. And remember, all tips regarding a case should go to the police. Until next time. Mr. Gatsby, want a cookie? Good boy. Hey, investigators. Thank you for joining me for this episode. Please be sure to check out the Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages under True Crime Deadline. You can find the link in the show notes and the official website, truecrimedeadline.com. And while you're there, you can check out the videos and pictures from the different cases and behind-the-scenes stuff of the podcast, including more about me, your host, Matt Johnson. And be sure to sign up for email alerts. That's coming soon, and I'll tell you about upcoming episodes as well. I want you to feel a part of this true crime journey, so feel free to suggest cases that you would like me to cover. Reach out, as always. If you write a review on Apple Podcasts, I'm going to give you a shout-out. So here's a special shout out to these investigators. Naptime Nancy Drew podcast, Amy from Crime Chicks podcast, Miranda from Light the Fright podcast, and Lad311. And speaking of podcasts and reviews, I want to share with you a podcast with a murder topic that not many people talk about. Killer Kids. True Crime Stories of Murderous Minors. Just so you know, this show is about scary stuff. So don't say I didn't warn you guys. And remember, don't be scared. Murderous Miners brings true tales of children who have killed. Premeditated murders, accidental killings and deaths, 
From toddlers to 18-year-old killers, no one is too young to take a life. Join me, War Baby, as I try to tell these stories of the young who've killed, the lives they took, and even the ones who've been left behind. Why do children kill? What do we do with young killers? And do they kill again? Until next time, don't be scared. And you can find Murderous Miners and this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Alexa, you know what, basically anywhere that you get your podcasts. We are there and we are waiting for you. Now, unless there is another big earthquake here in California where I can't record, next week's episode is going to be on a case that I've thought about for a long time. It's about a single mother in Reno whose son was found abandoned at a store clutching a few dollars, and he was found in another state. His mother's boyfriend arrested for the crime, but he took the secrets and the location of her body to his grave. We'll see you next time, investigators.